This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. And I'm Keith Baker. And uh, Scott and Wayne are unable to join us tonight, but hopefully they'll be able to uh, catch us or catch up with us next time. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing changelings and shifters and what they bring to your Eberron campaign. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, I find, Keith, and, and, and tell me your thoughts on this too, Warforged, for example, get a, a lot of the limelight for Eberron mm, as, as a definitely. distinctive race for Eberron. And, uh, and I think, I feel like shifters and changelings, and, uh, and I know Kalistar are pretty popular too, and we'll talk about them in another episode, but changelings and shifters, I feel like, are often uh, sort of underused or understated in Eberron. And what, I mean, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the things, I think taking changelings in particular, you could almost argue that that fits since the whole idea is that changelings are by and large hidden. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a couple of places where we call out sort of this is a changeling settlement, as it were. Uh, Lost in Droam, the Grey Tide in Lazar. Uh, but overall, part of the point of changelings is you don't know they're there. And so it's easy thus for them to not have as big an impact uh, on the setting as Warforged, where you're saying we're taking something strange and we're sort of dropping it right in the middle with a lot of problems. Right, um, right. You so, see a Warforged, it's obvious, you know. Right, exactly. And so what I'm saying is I think, uh, you know, it's certainly I agree that they have not gotten as much attention in terms of writing, but as I said, part of it is because uh, in general, they don't have an obvious culture or things like that to write about. And that's actually something in the Dragon Mark I wrote this year about changelings. I talk about sort of my view of one changeling culture that gets a little deeper into that. But it's not something that's really explored in canon material. Uh, shifters, I'm not as sure why. I agree with you. I don't feel they've, they've sort of caught on as strongly. Um, again, one can make the argument that they are primarily uh, sort of rural, uh, you know, they're in the Eldine Reaches, they're in the wilds, uh, but they're in the cities as well. But I still think we haven't specifically called out as strongly uh, their role in a way that both Warforged and Kalishtar have a very clear, defined uh, sort of hook right off the bat. You know, the Warforged, you have this, you were built for war, and now what's your purpose? You know, what are you doing? And with the Kalishtar, you have the struggle with the Dreaming Dark and this sort of built-in, you don't have to make that part of your story, but it's there if you want it. Whereas Shifters, for example, don't have that same immediate, this is the story of any random Shifter. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think Shifters are, in my opinion... Um, I find them personally compelling because I, I, mm -hmm. I do like that there's a sort of um, kind of primal nature to them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and then you have the history about, you know, lycanthropic heritage and so on. Um, and I know that Sh uh, Sharn City of Towers actually has a couple mm -hmm. in the book itself. It presents like a community of shifters and even some of the athletic things that they participate in and such, uh, which I, th I thought was really interesting. And, and I, you know, one of the things I like about shifters is, as you said, that sort of exploring their primal nature. I actually wrote a short story called Principles of Fire uh, that was about a shifter who's uh, essentially a Thrashk Inquisitive. And part of the point is I think the, the shifter variety is called Wild Hunt. You know, it gives you scent. 
Uh, and right. I was playing with that whole idea of it was really just sort of thinking of the way that a dog sort of perceives the world completely differently than we do in that they can they can smell things that happened hours ago. You know, they mm-hmm. can sort of see the past sort of around them. And so I was really playing with that idea and saying, well, what's it like to be essentially a person in the way we think of a person, but to then, you know, sort of go into that when you shift, suddenly be sort of seeing the world in this completely different way. And if it's just you get stronger or faster, you know, then that's not quite as dramatic. But as I said, uh, Wild Hunt in particular to me was just that, okay, what's that like, you know, suddenly having your senses uh, on that different level. And it was just fun to think about. Yeah. So in your opinion, when we, when we think about shifters, for example, like we know you mentioned that changelings don't necessarily have tight knit communities, you know, like mm-hmm. all over the place. Right. Well, um, the, the argument I would make on shame, shame, uh, changelings having tight knit communities is if they do, we don't know about it. Fair enough. You right. know, so that's my point is that changelings are very covert. Uh, whereas, you know, shifters, like any other race, don't have the inherent ability to hide that they're shifters, whereas changelings do. So, right. but back to your point. Yeah, and, and so in contrast, though, shifters do have these communities. Yes. Uh, some are in the Eldine Reaches, some are in, say, Sharn, for example, uh, or maybe in some of the more rural areas in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I find that interesting because then, you know, you have this... Um, you know, I, I like to try to think about the history as to why they, they created these tight-knit communities versus blending in with other cultures and such. Right. Um, and there's a sort of an outsider feel that they have, too, when, when they are trying to blend in with, well, with other cultures. A couple of the things that, that I like to explore there is, again, if you look at a shifter as sort of a stage down from lycanthrope, uh, and part of what defines the lycanthrope is that you have this this bestial nature that you sort of can't really control that changes your personality shifters don't have they're not cursed uh but the same idea the point to me just like i was talking about with the scent is that you have you're not just a person with fur uh you have these animal instincts and nature that make you different from humans and one of the things to that is you know part of when you're saying you're a shifter is what is your sort of prevalent sort of bestial type, if you will, and how does that affect things? You know, do you feel if you're a sort of lupine shifter, as it were, then you likely have, you know, pack instincts that essentially do connect you to others of your family or uh, at least race in a way that you don't connect with a human. Uh, It's a little like talking about the goblins having that eusocial bond of just saying that shifters uh, i think it's the same way that when we look at a cat or a dog we don't really understand their body language the way they understand it and to me it's just that idea that shifters are going to feel more sort of natural to other shifters because humans don't sort of behave the way or smell the way or you know any of these things that are just what instinctively feel natural to them. Uh, So to me, that's part of what leans towards sort of tight-knit clans or communities is this sort of idea that uh, you have this very primal, instinctual connection that humans just don't share those instincts, you know, Mm -hmm. and and they're always going to feel a little, you don't get how the world works uh, to a shifter. 
Right, right. Now, now culturally, when we, when we think of shifters, um, we think of a more, say, a, a, a race that's more closely tied with nature as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you typically don't see things like a shifter artificer and such, unless you want to maybe trap it a little bit with some sort of, um, you know, druidic type, you know, feel or something to that effect. I, I I raise my finger only because uh, of course one I forget her name but one of the iconic shifters in uh, in the original three point five Eberron things is in fact a shifter wizard uh, and she's certainly oh yes a couple times. right she's got a staff and now I don't disagree with you though I agree that in general when I think of shifters I think of them in the Eldine reaches I think of them as barbarians or druids. Uh, right. And, you know, to me, it's very much that idea that it's because that comes naturally to them because they have these primal instincts. On the other hand, and her name's something like Nisteri or something like that. To me, that means if you are playing a shifter, artificer, or wizard, you are sort of consciously going against that, you know, and that's an interesting role to play is what does that mean? How did you come to be a wizard? When again, that's likely not a family tradition or something like that. That's right. Um, right. I remember her in, it, in some of the Wayne Reynolds spreads uh, yeah. on the interior covers. I right. think she. I don't remember if she's in the the original core book or not. She might be in that sort of big spread with the um, them, you know, the Warforged in the center and such, holding the chest. Right. Uh, but she's in a bunch of things. Um, right. Nonetheless, the. You know, that is the kind of thing to me that is interesting with a shifter is if you're a primal type character, barbarian, ranger, uh, you know, druid, that's very easy to sort of just run with. If you are something different, then part of the question is why? You know, if you grew up on the streets of Sharn, why? You know, what brought Mm -hmm. your family there? Why did they stay? Uh, How have you adapted? Uh, And I did write an article at one point in uh, Dragon. I don't really remember much about it, but it was specifically about urban shifters. Uh, and talking about mm. the idea that just like rats and, you know, that basically there are animals who adapt to the city. And if you're an right. urban shifter, have you adapted in that way or does the city feel alien to you? I do think it's important to call out that traditionally speaking, shifters are not specifically tied to a specific animal. You don't look at a shifter and say, that's a wolf shifter. That's a cat shifter. Right. Right. Uh, the idea is that... It's, you know, you can decide that I have a very lupine nature or something like that, but that really the, the shifter types, the idea is, you know, they've, they've maybe once upon a time that was the case, but they blended together enough that really you have a broad shifter genotype, as it were, uh, and that it's more when you shift, you may pull in, again, the sort of aspect of a specific type of creature, but that doesn't mean... Uh, that you're walking around, you know, if you've if you're uh, sort of lupinish in nature, you aren't walking around with a snout and big ears or anything like that. Right, right. I think that's a fair clarification that shifters are not um, sort of like the half breed creature in terms of a human mating with like a lycanthrope. It's, it's, it's definitely it's a, a shifter is not a tabaxi, is what I'm right. saying. You know, or a knoll. You know, a shifter is right. a distinct race that then becomes, you know, assumes a particularly bestial aspect. But one of the points to me is I don't think it's even necessarily the case that uh, two long-tooth shifters will always have a long-tooth child. I think you could argue right. that maybe they've got some razor claw on the bloodline 
and you know right. that again exactly. it's, they, they aren't the sub races aren't necessarily distinct races they are all sort of traits that are in the shifter gene pool right it's not like you're directly descended from a um like a werebore or something right. to that effect and, it's, and it, this is the, like generations of shifters having yeah. you know reproduced and such right and one of the things i'll call out uh that i i pointed out i wrote a dragon shard a long time ago on the lycanthropic purge uh and one of the points about this is that uh the idea that many shifters assert that humans have it all wrong it's not that shifters are thin-blooded lycanthropes it's that lycanthropes are cursed shifters that back in the day, you know, the first lycanthropes were shifters who uh, who sort of fell, you know, into this dark path. Uh, but that again, they're saying, no, 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 they started as us, not we started as them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a thing that's sort of out there uh, that you can play with. You know, basically, it's never been stated in canon. It's said that it's some, you know, there is some connection between the two. But again, we've never actually said that, oh, originally a werewolf got together with a human and the result was a shifter. Right. So just let's let's stick to shifters for a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, yep. as creator of the setting, um, mm-hmm. what inspired shifters? Like where, how did they come about and what um, what was the inspiration for it in terms of, you know, let's create this thing that a player well, might be attracted to as a character? The funny thing about it is actually of all the races, uh, you know, the unique races of Eberron, Warforged, Shifter, Kalistar, Changelings, the one that was actually in the original proposal that I made were were the Changelings, except they weren't even called Changelings. They were Doppelgangers. And it was basically taking Doppelgangers, a race that exists in D&D, and saying, let's make these a playable race. And we can talk a little more about how that was originally planned uh, in, you know, uh, when we talk more about changelings. Um, But I didn't basically want to add a whole bunch of new races. I was looking at and saying, there's lots and lots of races out there. You know, do we need three or four more? Uh, So instead, I was doing more with orcs and goblins and doppelgangers and, you know, the things that were already in the world but hadn't been used much. Um, and then when Wizards settled on Eberron as one of the final three, they basically said, well, we'd like to see more races, uh, specifically races that sort of play with this idea that this is a world where magic is part of the world. So from that, oh, and the Kalistar were actually part of the original thing too because I was playing more with psionics. So they were yeah. out there too. But specifically, Warforged and Shifters came from that idea. Warforged as the idea of... Um, this is a world where magic is an industry and this is a constructed race. You know, this is a product of that that aspect of the world. Right. And then Shifters, it was sort of playing off essentially the idea of lycanthropes, uh, you know, the same way that a changeling is a uh, zero level, if you will, doppelganger. You know, a, a mm-hmm. Shifter is on some level. It's a chance to play a lycanthrope without all the various game-breaking resistances and stuff like that. Right. Um, and so it was capturing some of that idea of, again, magic in the world. Uh, I will say that actually the original version of Shifters I was playing around with, they did fully transform into a particular animal. Uh, it was a little more like I want to say hangi okay. Uh, from the old Oriental Adventures. Right, um, right. And as we evolved the idea, it just 
became simpler to sort of, uh, you know, make it more of this temporary enhancement uh, than to deal with the, the impact of a full shape-shifting. Right. Um, but that was one of the original ideas was that, you know, uh, they could fully assume an animal form. Well, that's and, interesting. So is that like sort of like one particular form for a given character, sort of like a, like a, yeah. a singular wild shape? Yeah. And, and to a certain degree, you know, that was a tricky, again, when I was coming up with that, I wasn't working on the mechanics. I was just playing around with the ideas. And part of the issue mm-hmm. that you get into is, is does that work? You know, how balanced are different forms? How does that scale with level? You know, yeah. there's a lot of different issues. So the way we went, you know, basically captured that core idea of I want a character with this sort of primal, you know, uh, bestial aspect but without all the complications that would have gone gone along right. with easier to say yeah easier to say uh, uh, natural attack or increase in armor class things like right, that right exactly then, right and yeah. and so to me it's it's it lets you sort of explore that sort of concept of a person who has this sort of wild primal bestial uh, nature uh, without going as far as something like a tabaxi. And to some degree, I think that's what's interesting is because shifters do stand between those worlds. They aren't literal beast men uh, in the way that a tabaxi is. They are mm-hmm. essentially between the human world and the animal world. Uh, and that that's kind of an interesting thing to play with. Um, yeah, because they're, they're sort of, um, they're really m- almost mostly human with just, an animal type trait of some sort right uh, you know right so they're not they're not like you know like you said like a lion man type of character right and so that's the point to me is i like that idea of saying as i said looking to um uh my shifter detective you know the idea that she had the enhanced scent and such but among other things part of the fact is that it wasn't with her all the time you know, she had to shift to get that ability. So she was still generally experienced in the world as a human would, but then she could go into this uh, descent mode, as it were, mm-hmm. which is very different from just saying, I am a knoll who has advanced scent all the time, if you see right. what I'm saying. Right. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. And so to me, that is part of that thing of, again, saying you're that character standing in between these worlds. Um, and which side do you take? You know, where do you go? Do you embrace those instincts? Do you turn again, you know, try and sort of, again, go with the urban shifter? And do you become the wizard and say, I'm, I'm really focusing on, uh, you know, this other, the human aspect of my mm-hmm. personality? So, um, oh, go ahead. You were going to say something. No, 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 no. I mean, and again, I think that all comes back to, so what's interesting about them in games uh, you know, whether as a player or a game master. And to me, you know, as a player, it is exploring those questions of, are you from the wild? Are you from the city? If you're from the city, are you comfortable there? Are you trying to belong there? Or are you a stranger who doesn't fit in? Uh, you know, are you comfortable with your instincts and your primal nature? Or are you sort of still trying to, to find that balance in yourself? You know, again, if you're something like a barbarian, uh, when you rage, is that part of your animalistic nature? Mm-hmm. If you're a druid, is that because, you know, this is just an innate natural part of you? Um, 
looking as a game master, you know, part of the things that shifters, of course, do make really good if you're going to be working with the druidic sects and such. You know, uh, they fit very well with that. If you're having Ashbound, you know, the Ashbound Barbarian, you know, makes a great shifter. Um, so those are things to explore. And also, again, when you have them in a place like Sharn, just how do they fit in there? Uh, you know, are there going to be problems? Not to mention then getting into their whole interaction with the Silver Flame and tensions related to the Lycanthropic Purge. Right. So in your Eberron, do you, speaking of the Lycanthropic Purge, do you, do you have uh, those tensions still existing? Or is it sort of like, you know what, that was a long time ago. You know, the world's a better place now. It depends where it is. Uh, so first off, I have my own very strong feelings about the Lycanthropic Purge, which I have, again, posted in that Dragon uh, dragon Shard. If you type in Dragon Shard Lycanthropic Purge, you'll, you'll come up with it. Uh, which the big thing to me is a lot of people tend to look at the Purge as the equivalent of something like our Inquisition uh, and as essentially something that was an unjustified... Uh, sort of the silver flame cruelly stamping out these poor innocent lycanthropes. And I see it completely differently. You know, the reason we introduced the concept of it in the first place was because we were originally writing Eberron for 3rd edition D&D, and in 3rd edition D&D, afflicted lycanthropes could spread lycanthropy. Right. which meant a werewolf bites you, you bite someone, they become a werewolf, they bite someone, they become a werewolf. And the main point was I looked at that and said, this has all the potential of a zombie plague. The, this is something that could wildly get out of control. And 3rd edition D&D and 3.5, frankly, were very specific that when you submit to the curse, it completely alters your personality, that like a person who becomes a werewolf isn't that person anymore. Right. They are not mm -hmm. just evil, they are basically a brutal killer, and they'll turn right. on their family and friends. And so to me, I looked at this- They are effectively a monster. They are a monster. And even right. a good lycanthrope, they basically say, is gonna basically, if you become a werebearer, you're gonna abandon your previous life and go off to live in the woods. You're not just suddenly, yay, I got superpowers. Um, so to me, I looked at this and said, this is a curse. It effectively destroys the person who is infected by it, and it is potentially wildly contagious. Uh, if you have an organized, essentially, public health system, they will try and wipe this out the way we wiped out things like smallpox. Right. And that was the idea of the Lycanthropic Purge. Originally, it was just, this is what a civilized society would do. Mm -hmm. um, and then flipping to that... Then, of course, we have the problem of, well, then we get to 3.5 and they took away uh, afflicted lycanthropes spreading it. So suddenly it didn't make sense. Why were they so, why was this a disaster? Uh, and so I've actually put back in my canon, and it's even something I've said in the novels and such, uh, it is, it's not contagious now, but it was then that whether right. it was the work of an overlord or something else, there was a period where there was essentially a dramatic surge and spread of lycanthropy. And it was, this is the potential for a zombie apocalypse, except it's a werewolf apocalypse. That it was spreading dramatically. People who are bitten, you know, it takes you over and turns you into a monster. And that if no one had done anything, it could have swept across Corvair and destroyed human civilization. 
right. and that when it began, the Templars were taking a stand to defend the people of Ondera against a horrible threat. Uh, and that this was a, you know, the Templars, when they first went in, the odds were not in their favor. Now, I've always sort of told people, if you consider the fact that most uh, soldiers in Eberron are warriors, if you take a second level warrior and just take a peasant and slap the werewolf template on them, uh, it's not a good matchup. Um, so to me, one of like the one shots I've always wanted to do and I've never gotten around to is basically doing a, you know, I look at the the early stage of the purge as basically like the vietnam war with werewolves like this brutal a jungle you know sort of forest warfare with the templars sort of having better discipline and organization but facing this opponent who can sort of disappear uh you know anywhere because they literally mm -hmm. you know especially like were rats and such the whole idea is they were intentionally trying to like stir up conflict between the local shifters uh, and such to, to throw things off. Uh, and that, again, to me, the first stage of it was just just horrific, really brutal struggle. Um, and that when it finally turned around, when they finally turned the tide, they weakened the power of the curse, they, they finally sort of broke it, then it moved into more witch-hunty territory, but the idea even then is that part of how that happened is that wasn't necessarily Thrain driving that. It was the Andarians who had essentially lived through, you know, 30 years of just terror and right, who were right. now driven by just this this need for, you know, this sort of unreasoning need for vengeance, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the purge started as a vital, if they hadn't done anything, it could have destroyed, you know, Galifar. And it just ended in this paranoid mob, uh, mob rule sort of thing. And that's where we call out the idea that the pure flame are largely based in Ondere. Is it supposed to be from that time? The pure flame are the people who basically their experience of the silver flame was as a weapon. You know, this is what saved us when the monsters came. And to us, it is, you know, a tool of inquisition and, and a thing uh, to sort of brutally fight the darkness. And so that's where you get Derisnu, you know, burning people and stuff. I'm like, oh, that's horrifying to your, your typical uh, Thranish priest. But it's because uh, it's this Ondarian tradition that is really just built from... Uh, taking the faith in this time of, of terror and fear. Right. So that's probably more about the Lycanthropic Purge than you ever wanted to know. Um, no, but I think I think it does cast a, an interesting light on uh, maybe the outlook that, that shifters might right. have on life, right? And, so uh, but also even some, yeah. oh, I was going to say, even yeah, some yeah. reflection on how others might perceive shifters. Right, so coming back to that point, part of the point is to me, most of the shifters weren't pro-werewolf. You know, the idea is that a werewolf at that time literally, again, is a brutal killer who will prey on their own friends and family. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that werewolf around. Right. Um, and one of the things we've said in Eberron, and, and I say in this, this shard, is that essentially we've softened that a little to say that uh, lycanthropic alignment isn't tied to form. All werewolves aren't necessarily evil, but what we've said is it's tied to strain. 
if I'm an evil werewolf and I bite you and pass the curse to you, you will become an evil werewolf. You know, that there's there's no, uh, but we said we could be a little less predictable, but is still, my point is, nobody wants an evil lycanthrope around because they, whoever, whatever they were to begin with, they will become a monster. Uh, and so the idea is that the shifters could have been allies. And, and part of my idea of that one shot I want to run would be like basically four Templars, two shifters having to work together in the midst of, you know, horrible situation uh, and having this tense relationship. But, uh, so they could have worked together, but again, both a natural reaction to seeing them and suspecting them, uh, as well as then the idea that, especially among more cunning lycanthropes like were-rats, it was to their interests to propagate that, to cause, you know, to set everybody at odds. Um, And that during the later days of the Purge, terrible things were done to the shifter population. So the shifters essentially feel, we got screwed by everybody. And... um, and on top of that, the idea is you still do have a lot, you know, this was only a century and a half ago, uh, maybe two, um, and that you still have all these sort of Ondarian on the fringe families who still remember all these, you know, or at least don't remember, but they have in their family history, you know, that we lost, you know, your great-grandfather got killed by the werewolves, you know, sort of thing. And mm-hmm. that when they see shifters, they're just naturally, you know, they don't trust them. Uh, and again, it was a long time ago, but it's still the idea that those tensions are there in that sense on either side that can we really trust you people? You don't understand us. Right. Right. Like, you know, you might see a shifter, for example, or, or let's say if I'm playing a shifter, mm-hmm. um, somebody might look at my character uh, as uh you know, un- untrustworthy or as uh, a potential threat, as wild, as erratic, as, um, you know, any any of those things yeah. that, that uh, yeah, just, just, and, just unstable, right? And I think that's part of the idea of also saying that within the world, most people don't understand the relationship between shifters and lycanthropes. As just a random just farmer, that. I don't know. I don't get mm-hmm. it. You're a fuzzy person and you, you get fuzzier and grow, grow claws. You know, I don't right. really know other than I know lycanthropes are bad. And so, again, that's certainly something. On the other hand, uh, you know, I've also seen people run with characters that are saying, like, I am a shifter who has embraced the silver flame and who's basically trying to sort of repair the damage between the two. And I understand that uh, both, you know, both sides were trying to do the right thing in that period. And that's an interesting thing. Uh, to explore as well, so you can you can definitely play to to both of those. So that's that's an interesting angle as well. Then I mean, even even not necessarily being aligned to the Silver Flame, how do right. you perceive the relationship between say a shifter and how they see say a were rat? Uh, to me, as I said, I mostly say that nobody likes an evil lycanthrope and that they understand that better than most humans because they are not. You know, the human looks at the two and says, I can't tell the difference between you. The shifter can. Mm-hmm. And so I've called that out in sort of a couple places of saying, you know, that's where I say one of the common myths they have is that lycanthropes are cursed shifters, you know, or were the first ones. And so they look at them and say, this thing is a curse. You know, that thing, that that where rat is not closer to nature 
it is the embodiment of our fears, you know, and that's how mm. I personally look at lyca- lycanthropy is based on what the alignment of the creature is. It's either embodying the traits we admire or the traits we fear. That the point is a werewolf is not, it's not natural. It's not somehow, again, a, a champion of nature. It is a thing that embodies what we fear about the wolf. It, we, you know, it's a predator. Uh, it lurks, it's dark, it's frightening. You know, the rat, ooh, it's disgusting, it's cunning, it spreads disease. You know, these aren't necessarily actually true of the animal, but they're what, you know, they're human fears of the animal. Whereas if it's good lycanthrope, it's embodying the sort of noble traits we see in the creature, which again might have nothing to do with its actual natural traits. But it's, oh, we see it as courageous or bold or things like that. So to me, I definitely look at lycanthropy as an unnatural magical thing that uh that again shifters are closer to nature than lycanthropes are if that makes any sense because a lycanthrope is a bearer of a curse right um and so so to me but as i said that's that's a very high level view of things any particular shifter could feel differently you know, if right. you wanted to say I'm a shifter who thinks lycanthropes are champions and, you know, persecuted champions and I love them, that's fine. And I hope you're never stuck in a room with an evil werewolf. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's how I feel about that. But I feel yeah. if you take like a shifter druid, that's your champion of nature who assumes animal form. If you right. see what I'm saying. Right. And that the lycanthrope is... A sort of fake version of that and that's certainly where i was going in this one shot where the point is one of the characters is a shifter druid is that you have a shifter druid and a shifter ranger and then this bunch of templars who don't know the area at all and can they get past their their prejudices because they need each other uh you know the and um so to me as i said whether it's true or not that's where i like the idea of the shifter who embraces their primal nature is closer to nature than the lycanthrope. And that's right. certainly the myth that comes up is basically that they were blessed by, uh, I forget which moon, but one of the moons, uh, and I think it's Olorun, but I could be wrong. Uh, you know, they were blessed by the moon, um, and that again, uh, the, the lycanthropes are those who turned against them and were cursed. Um... So I play with that very differently. But yeah. if we want to, to talk about uh, changelings at all, we should probably move, uh, move along to that. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to mention that. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty good coverage of shifters. Uh, and, and I think it, you've, you've pretty much stated that, um, uh, you know, th- there's a number of reasons why a player might want to choose a shifter and how they might want to portray them. Um, and I, I think they're I think they're a fun race in that regard in terms of exploring sort of like if you know if you want to play a character that's trying to get in, tr- in touch with more of a natural primal state or you know mm-hmm. just simply leveraging those abilities for things like being an investigator right or, or inquisitive right for and and so. that's definitely the point to me is to me the chain the shifter is the one that has that real tie to nature in a way that mm-hmm. again in my world even the lycanthrope doesn't yeah. Uh, yeah and it is interesting to play with that. Certainly. So changelings, I, I find intriguing. Now, I have yet to actually play a changeling in a, in a camp, mm-hmm. and I, I typically DM anyway. Um, 
but one of the reasons why I like change things is, and this is sort of on a personal note, mm-hmm. in that um, so I'm I'm Puerto Rican and Cuban, um, but I was raised very like American. Like my parents raised me on like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and things like that. Um, and so I always, I as a player have have often um, gravitated toward half elves, and changelings intrigue me um, from that perspective of not necessarily fitting into um, a, a given sort of culture. Right now, changelings, mm-hmm. as we said, you know, earlier, they might have their own sort of communities that we don't necessarily know about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that really intriguing because you could as a player you could use that as a means to explore identity the concept of identity and you know who am i what does it mean what traits do i want to express as an individual do i want to be malleable in in terms of um you know changing my personality and who i socialize with and so on uh and i and i think that's really compelling about changelings no, I completely agree. And one of the things I'll say from the start is the primary canon source on Changelings is Races of Eberron. Mm-hmm. I didn't write the, the, the Changeling chapter uh, in that, and I don't personally really agree with it. Yeah. Uh, it presents these three sort of philosophies and says these are all Changelings. Mm-hmm. And I think they're all good philosophies, but I don't accept the idea that all Changelings everywhere have to pick one of these things. To me, it is a cultural thing. And I'm saying, yeah, there is a changeling culture where they identify these three, these three types. But then there is another changeling culture that is completely different. Right. Uh, so that's just one thing. Is To me, what I'm saying is I think what's presented in Races of Eberron is entirely valid, but it is not the only option. It is a way right. to handle changelings. Right. I look at changelings, uh, and this is sort of touched on in the, the Dragonmark article that we'll link to, in sort of three ways and basically say, what is your connection to other changelings? And the, the ways I identify them are foundlings are changelings who have just grown up among humans or among another race, mm-hmm. and that you had no contact with other changelings when you were growing up. And you had to just, did you just blend in? Did you hide who you were? Did your friends know? You know, how did, and part of the idea is because even going back to the name changeling, part of the thought is that if a changeling mates with a human, uh, that the child initially adopts the phenotype of the the mother, uh, but then at some point, uh, the the changeling genes sort of kick in and they become a changeling. And mm-hmm. that uh, early on, parents would have this idea that their child had literally been swapped. That I had this little baby boy and I came back and now there's this gray thing in the crib. Huh. And hence, changeling. Right. Um, but, you know, were you alone? Did you, you know, so you have no culture to draw on. You had to sort of find your own way. You had to figure out what things meant. Were you among a stable community of changelings? Which is to say, this is a place where changelings are known and recognized and and have a place. We've only presented a couple of those, but in Sharn, for example, I think it's Dragon Eyes in Sharn is a known changeling community. And so you have changelings there who, again, are open about being changelings. And that's mm-hmm. going to be a very different. And, you know, we have the Great Tide in Lazar Principalities, and we have the City of Lost in uh, Doam, although the whole Doam. kind of Lost is no one knows where it is. Right. Um, 
But those are very different because, again, you are openly interacting. You know, you aren't hiding your nature. Uh, and then we have what I call tribal changelings, which are the idea of changeling, sort of nomadic changeling communities uh, where you have a family, you have sort of clan, but they're spread out. And, and they intentionally do blend in and sort of conceal their nature where they go. And so to me, it sort of comes back to, to where, where do you fit in on that spectrum? You know, are you comfortable uh, with everybody knowing you're a changeling? Have you grown up having to hide that, you know, or is it something that to you, you have a very strong sense of sort of changeling identity and sort of, again, pity the poor single skins who, who are stuck in a forum? Right, right. Um. Part of the thing to me I think is interesting about changelings comes back to sort of what you were saying too of what does physical identity mean to someone who has the ability to change shape. Mm -hmm. And to me part of the point is we always talk about we wear masks. This is the face I put on when I go to party. This is the face I put on, uh, you know, I reveal to my friends. And um, what I established especially with the tribal changelings, was this idea of personas, Mm -hmm. which is saying that to a changeling, those things can actually be more formalized. That I, you know, the way that I would say I, Keith, create a face that I use when I'm, you know, going to a convention or something. That for a changeling, that would actually be a full individual. I would become, you know, I've got the, the hat that I wear when I go to conventions, you know, all of that. Well, you know, this is the person I become when I go to conventions. Right. Um, and when I was playing a particular character, changeling character in a 5e game, uh, I was playing a changeling rogue, and I basically had four different personas that I would actually use for different situations. So my main character was a sort of easygoing, you know, neutral goody rogue type character who was good at persuasion and deception and such. Uh, but was basically a really nice person and, you know, kind of soft-hearted and didn't like fighting. And then I had this dwarf fighter uh, who was, or not, he wasn't a fighter, he was a rogue, but, you know, a sort of mugger, if you will, uh, who was this sort of brutal thug uh, who was really good at intimidation and really liked fighting. And the point is, when I I knew I was going to get into a fight, I would generally shift to him because he liked fighting. Right. Whereas if I was stuck in the fight as Max, uh, she hates fighting. You know, she's not going to be as, as sort of ruthless or, or bloodthirsty. Um, the way I sort of described this was as if you can think of each one of these as a story. And when I'm playing that persona, it's sort of my whole, it's, it's the other way I said, it's like thinking in another language. You know, Max and Bronson just think differently. They approach things differently. You can say, well, how come he's mean and she's nice? And I'm like, well, it's not that simple. It's that she's mean when she's him because he's mean. And, you know, this is the person I become when I'm in a fight because, you know, whereas a human just says, oh, I'm getting angry and I'm a meaner person now, that for her it's like, oh, no, that's a whole different person that I pull out when I need to be that way. 
See, that's that's really intriguing to me because that's that's like a physical manifestation of like the mul- a multiple personality mm-hmm. you know, disorder type of character, right? Now, but you, it, it sounds like you didn't really play it as any kind of disorder. It was just no. more to the advantage of a given situation. It was, and right? and the thing is. I sort of had some limitations on it, but they were entirely self-imposed. It was entirely a role-playing thing. You know, the mm-hmm. whole point is, for example, I know Bronson doesn't speak Elvish. So, you know, technically, well, of course he speaks Elvish. He's her. You know, I mean, they're the same character. And technically, he thus understands Elvish because she understands Elvish. But the point is, I'm saying I won't speak Elvish when I'm mm. in his form, because that's breaking the role. You know, right. I'd, st- I'd, I'd hold back on speaking it until I become the character who does. So part of the point of it is, mechanically, it didn't actually give me any, you know, again, my character sheet says I have deception, persuasion, and intimidation, and I'm good at them all. So there's nothing technically stopping Max from using intimidation. But I'm just saying, oh, but she just wouldn't. This isn't who she is. She's not That's good not who at she that. Is, right. Whereas, oh, Bronson, oh no, he loves intimidation. And mm-hmm. so I'm saying that to me it was just sort of this, again, sort of externalizing these ideas of where human will just, again, so as we've said, sort of put on these masks in different situations. For Max, she would become these different persons for these different situations. And as uh, for the game master, it also provided a lot of hooks because part of the idea was that some of these personalities were actually inherited. That the point mm. is Bronson in particular as a dwarf uh, had been created by another member of her family and handed down to her. Uh, you know, you get to be Bronson now. And that meant that he had contacts in like the Boromar clan and things like that because he's this established guy who's been around and that's part of why oh it's very important that she doesn't speak elvish and that she you know does this stuff is because he's got a story that's actually older than her and if he's suddenly speaking elvish people could be like what you know who is you know you never knew elvish right um and so it's this sort of interesting idea of you know, again, with each of these personas, I actually played up the idea of saying, well, what defines this? What is the story of this character? Uh, and again, I could always break those. But the point is, A, that would be hard for her. And B, I really like the idea of thinking of it as, as I said, thinking in a different language. Mm-hmm. It's that when you assume the persona, you really trained yourself to think like this person. You know, so it's not just that, uh, you know, oh, I'm just not going to stab someone in in this persona because that breaks the the role. It's no, when she becomes Bronson, she becomes mean because that's what being Bronson is, is that he is a ruthless, uh, cruel person. Right. And it's not as completely out of control as multiple personality disorder because, again, she's choosing at any time she can just switch into a new persona sure uh, yeah mm-hmm. well I, I think it's sort of you know if we think about our own personalities even in, in the real world you know who i am when i'm around my family for example right and, and the way i interact in a conversation uh is going to be very different from the kinds of things i say and how i even speak and how i present myself in say a meeting at work and yes. this is the, the funny uh, aspect of there is saying that also don't forget that just because changelings uh, 
can become other creatures. Nothing saying a changeling can't change its appearance to look like a different changeling. Oh, and part of the point there is that to me it's exactly that you would have a face that is your face that you just use with your family that this is is your sort of most open this is who you are and when you're going to go out onto the street you're going to change into your street face even if that's just the face of a, of a changeling you're just hardening the features wow. or you know that's a whole new like layer that. yeah so that's like a um, changeling for example if you want to if you want to come across as a changeling still because that's the identity you want yep but you want to seem maybe friendlier or more intimidating. Right. Or, You're going to soften yeah. your features. I mean, basically think of anything humans do with plastic surgery and say, but you could just do that anytime you feel like it. You know? Wow. You want to seem more sympathetic? Make your eyes bigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, and that that's just part of who you are. One of the things I call out with the idea of tribal changelings in particular uh, is also the idea of skin can't. Uh, which is to say that they have physical features that actually have meaning within a family. So Mm. tattoos, scars, things like that, that literally if I just put a particular scar under my left eye, that is an announcement to any other member of my family that I need help or I'm lying to you or something because I Mm. could do that. That Mm. any sort of scar or mark or something like that is something that actually can have a meaning. Uh, you know, that again, a normal person wouldn't understand, you know, oh, so you've got a particular uh, pattern of freckles. Um, And so it's just sort of thinking about things like that or particular individuals. Again, if I come into town and I'm Bob the Merchant, Bob the Merchant is a guy who's in trouble. And, you know, if you ever see Bob the Merchant, help that dude out, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And again, that's going into tribal changelings, and that's the idea that they have their own specific customs. And that's stepping back from the other stuff we've been talking about that really any type of changeling, you know, could have of just that idea of uh, your body being something that you use the way that we as humans use anything from clothing to expressions. Right. I was just going to say expressing mood or disposition. mm -hmm. Yeah. I can also see... mm -hmm. Oh, I was gonna say I could also see a scenario where maybe two changelings, for example, might even share an identity and oh, yeah. taking turns. You know, well, that's actually something that's quite well established in canon. Actually, is oh, one right. of the ideas yeah. is that within stable changeling communities, uh, was well, both within stable communities or within tribal. Uh, you know, in stable communities, we definitely talk about the idea. In like Sharn, for example, both the councilman. Mm-hmm. Uh, of Dragon Eyes, who's a changeling and like the leader of the tyrants, I think. It's established that, oh, that's actually a bunch of different changelings. Right. Who, right. you know, it's just someone someone takes on. And to me, that's the persona. You mm-hmm. know, that that's the point. The councilman is a persona, but it's a shared persona. Right. And you'd have been trained. You know, we're not just going to throw you into the councilman and say, put on this face and go. It's anyone who's going to play the role of the councilman has has practiced with with a teacher you know who's taught them to be the councilman and this is what the councilman thinks like and this is what he looks like and this is how he behaves mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it comes back to what i was saying about that idea of bronson the dwarf that um had been passed on from an uncle to uh to my character but it's saying that some are like that where only one person takes the character at a time but you certainly can have character you know personas that are shared 
whether they're concrete established personas like the councilman where it's very important we all play them the same way or again like you said it could just be that we just have this particular face and mm. this is the the happy face you know and when you're right. you're feeling happy be the happy face um but yeah yeah i mean i'm just saying definitely that idea of uh of shared personas is something i've always seen uh as as being out there and all of this again is about changeling culture and this comes back to the fact if you don't want to be any part of this if you don't like doing any of this this is where you can say well i'm just a changeling who grew up among humans i have no connection to this and my how i use my shape changing is totally a unique experience to me that i've developed on my own because i was never around uh other changelings and didn't learn any of these customs yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's really a thing for you to think of as a changeling character is what was your experience with it and what does it mean to you? You know, and I think it's important, too, for GMs to understand that because I'm in the same boat as you with regards to the presentation in Races of Eberron, where when I mm-hmm. read those three descriptions, I'm like, well, this feels too absolute. Like, Absolutely. This, like there's there's a lot of gray area. Pardon the pun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, in terms of um, how change things can be perceived and played uh, in in the game sense, right? Right. Um, and I think as a, as a GM, it's important to really exercise um, the ideas of what possibilities exist for mm-hmm. uh, changelings in the world of Eberron and how they can be. You know, how, like there could be the majority of changelings could be, as you mentioned, like these individuals who have grown up among different races. Um, mm-hmm. Or they could be in your Eberron, you know, community driven and, and very focused in terms of, you know, tribal or, or, or uh, stable communities and such. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, I, I'm me, definitely not sticking to one yeah. stereotype of a changeling is important. And to me, it's just because also humans aren't all the same way. Right. So looking at just what I present in the article, the point is I'm just presenting here are three completely different changeling cultures mm-hmm. in part because it's more interesting to have three different changeling cultures. And further, even within those three, uh, Lost, the Grey Tribe, and Dragon Eyes are all stable changeling communities, but they're all going to be very different from one another. You know, the Lost are, are changelings who've grown up in Droam and this area of monsters and all of this. You know, the Grey Tide is, is sort of connected into the Lazar Principalities and Dragon Eyes is part of Sharn and has been interacting with, you know, massive numbers of humans and other races sort of for hundreds of years. You know, they've been sort of tightly integrated into things as opposed to Lost being a completely isolated uh, all-changeling community. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just going to be very different. So basically, to me, the point is Lost is going to feel more alien, whereas Dragon Eyes, they've at least learned to live alongside humans, even if they don't necessarily hide from them the way that a right. foundling or a tribal might. Right. So with, with respect to, uh, you mentioned doppelgangers and that changelings mm-hmm. were inspired by what would doppelgangers be like in a, in a D&D fantasy setting? How would that, yep. um, how would that really, really work, right? Mm-hmm. You wrote a book uh, in, mm-hmm. I think it was published in 2002. Uh, mm-hmm. That was Complete Guide. The to Complete Guide to Doppelgangers by Goodman Games. Yeah, so how, how much of, of what you perceived for changelings was inspired by that and how much of that book might actually be useful to somebody who wants to play a changeling. 
Next to nothing, unfortunately. Great. Easy. Uh, <laughs> because the Complete Guide to Doppelgangers really played with the doppelganger as it exists in the 3.5, you know, in the Monster Manual, which is to say naturally telepathic uh, and, you know, with very significant changing abilities, which, frankly, the changeling has slightly lower. Mm-hmm. And what I actually did with the Complete Guide to Doppelgangers is took things a step further and sort of I was looking at the doppelganger as a monster, sort of as it's portrayed as a monster where they just pop up and they're impersonating dukes or things like that and sort of saying, why? Why would they do these things? Okay. Um, and one of the things that I did was to say that the doppelganger is actually just one stage of the creature's life cycle. That the doppelganger is the immature stage and that as it grows older a doppelganger actually settles and becomes more sedate and actually becomes a mimic. And then then when you get a whole community, eventually a large group of mimics will merge together and become what I call the Doppelstadt, which is essentially a mimic looks like an object. A Doppelstadt looks like a building. Oh, wow. And that you actually can have, you know, an inn where it's not just that all the people in the inn are doppelgangers, it's that the building is a doppelganger. Uh, And so I was really playing up with the idea of also the telepathy, you know, the telepathic aspect of doppelgangers. And part of the idea there is they play into the idea that like a doppelstadt is essentially the anchor. It's the sort of mental anchor of a doppelganger community. And among other things, it can hold memories and personalities. And so there the idea is you could literally download a persona if you're a doppelganger from a doppelstadt. Uh, and so again, we'd sort of have this repository of, of sort of memories and identities that you could pull out for there. So the doppelgangers in that are basically much more alien, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah. Because they really are, you know, I was playing up the telepathy aspect. When we went to changelings, the idea was saying, this is something that is more plausible as a player character. Um, And uh, so as a result, you know, they, among other things, they don't change their clothing. You know, their powers are more limited. They don't have fully innate telepathy. They have sort of uh, a gift for insight and deception. And the idea was always that that's tied to telepathy. It's that I have a sort of innate intuitive sense of things, but it's not the fully developed power. And this is part of the question of it's really up to you as the game master to decide in Eberron what are doppelgangers. Uh, And the simplest path, in my opinion, is just to say doppelganger is just a pejorative term for a sociopathic changeling. And that it is simply the doppelganger as we know it is a changeling who has developed their psychic abilities essentially they've developed uh telepathic and i'm forgetting the name of the discipline that lets you create things like body weaponry and such like that oh um uh, yeah i'm drawing a blank on it too you know Um, what i mean though uh and so that that's the point of saying that a doppelganger isn't a separate race it is simply a changeling who has mastered certain techniques Uh, And that essentially, if someone is a friendly shape changer, you call them a changeling. And if someone's a brutal, you know, murdering killer, you call them a doppelganger. But that really they're the same thing. Um, And that was the route that we were originally going was that idea of saying that as a as a changeling, there would be a doppelganger class 
that you could take, you know, with only five levels. There was a book called Savage Species that yes. uh, in 3.5 that had sort of monster classes. And that was the original idea was saying, well, Changeling is the default and to become a doppelganger, you would take a couple levels in this class. Um, and we just sort of pushed that aside. But that's what I'm saying is it's still the same here is it's up to you to sort of decide is the doppelganger a truly separate creature and if so this comes back to our lycanthrope versus shifter is it something where the doppelganger is the sort of most pure blood whereas the changeling has been sort of its abilities have have been weakened by crossbreeding with other species uh or is it just that they're all one thing and the doppelganger is just someone who has developed those particular abilities right right um okay. But to me, it all comes back to, again, in using them, you know, that whole thing of as a doppelganger, what does your ability mean to you? How do you use your shape-shifting? Uh, how, you know, do you interact? Do you, were you part of a community of changelings or not? Do you feel like an outcast? Do you want to hide who you are or do you embrace it? Um, and as a game master... You know, it's just this idea that there's lots of interesting things you can do with them. I'll call out that one of the early adventures uh, I wrote has a scenario where the group early on runs into a force of Emerald Claw soldiers being led by a vampire. And they're oh, first level yes. characters. And it's like, oh, holy, you know, the first time I ran that adventure, the players were wow, what the, you know, we can't deal with a vampire. And the point is, he's not a vampire. He's a changeling who likes vampires and is looking Spoiler like alerts. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not saying names or anything like that. Right. Uh, but that's that's the point to me is you can do that kind of thing of it doesn't just have to be that they are impersonating someone specific uh, to, to impersonate them. It can also just play to the fact that they look like what they want to look like. Right. And that the guy who likes vampires looks like a vampire even though he's not. He's not right. fooling you. Know, it's not like he's looking like a specific vampire. You know, if you see what I'm saying, he's yeah, just yeah. embracing the fact that he can he can assume different forms. Right, right. Yeah, it's 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 a personality that he wants to have. Right. And uh, right. I, I, I'm actually um, my my campaign was on hiatus for a few months, mm -hmm. uh, and that's actually the encounter that we left off at. So I'm like really excited Oops. about. Oops. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Later. None of my. None of my players listen to this. So, uh, yeah, but it's definitely one of those. Um, well, and I, a I remember the, the very first time I ever ran that adventure way back when. I was like, that is totally cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, a funny thing to think about, though, when you get to that, though, is this is a way to play with recurring villains. Because if you establish a villain as a persona that is shared amongst a group of changelings, you, yes. know, you say that we've got Dr. Doom. Then the players kill Doctor Doom, and dang, a week later, Doctor Doom's back, and you're like, "I we killed that guy." Right. Well, part of the point is it may be that that he's a shared persona that it's a different changeling is picking that up, and like one of uh, the things with the character I was playing, uh, it was a campaign where it was thirty years in the future of Eberron. We decided mm -hmm. at the start we're going to jump forward thirty years, and it changed a bunch of things. And I actually established that my character was descended from that, that fake vampire uh, and had that persona tucked away. Nice. 
And basically one of her long-term goals was to redeem that persona because in that campaign he'd done like terrible things and ended up like taking over Carnath and like, you know, all this stuff. So like for that campaign, he was a really bad guy. Oh wow! And I just love this idea that I had, no one knew that I was related to or anything, but at some point, like I could become that guy. And to me, I'm sort of like, oh, I hate my ancestor because he spoiled that persona. Like that persona wasn't supposed to be a villain. He was a blood of all wise mentor Mm -hmm. but he Mm -hmm. took him and made him into this villain and now can i find a way to redeem that story to turn that story around and we never played the game long enough for me to actually pursue that but i loved it as the idea that in addition to the the personalities i used i've got this personality i don't even know if i ever will use but that you know again i'm sort of carrying hitler in my back pocket you know sort of thing I could I could um, even see a GM using that, uh, say, you know, historically saying that there's this character, this legendary character in, in their campaign right. or their version of Eberron that's just been perpetuated by a, a lineage of changelings. You know? and, and that's exactly the point of saying, like, you could say that as your changeling, you essentially have King Arthur as your mm-hmm. persona. But basically, like, you can't you can't be him until you can back it up. Like, you know exactly how to, to, you know, you know you've got the personality, the, the appearance down. You know how King Arthur's supposed to act. But again, you're not a great warrior. You, you're not ready to lead people. But, you know, if a time comes when you're supposed to lead people into, you know, the final battle, well, you know, you know how to be King Arthur, if you see what I'm saying. Wow, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually so, even imagining now a group of, or let's say a lineage of changelings, Right. Um, pretending to be a lineage of, say, humans, even. Yep. You know, well, just... and this is part of the idea of the, that helps with things like when I had one of my personas being a dwarf. Because the point right. is, dwarves live longer than changelings. And elves work well that way as well. Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. saying, I can have an elf. And this was the point of the, the, the fake vampire. Is saying, well, part of why is a fake vampire is because vampires are immortal. So no one questions the fact that this guy has been around for hundreds of years, even though, right. uh, you know, uh, if if he was just a human, we couldn't keep the persona around that long because he ought to age and die. Um, wow. But to Good me, stuff. you could do a lot of stuff stuff with that. And to me, what I liked was that whole idea of saying is that the story, the character itself, you know, this particular face for the character had its own story and purpose. Uh, and, you know, because I'm an heir to the King Arthur face, it's my job to try and actually live up to that and reach a point where I can assume that identity uh, without spoiling the story. Right, right. So that's some so crazy, yeah, some crazy uh, changeling stuff for y'all to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's even some things I was like, I never even thought of that possibility. That's uh, That's really cool. But... Uh, but I do I do suggest looking at the Dragon Mark because uh, so it's it's just called Changelings I think yeah yeah Dragon Mark's Changelings uh, just because uh, I I go into a bunch of this stuff in more detail yeah we'll make sure we have links in the show notes for that as well and um, cool I think that that kind of wraps up everything about shifters and changelings that we wanted to cover and so. and to me it's it's just very much the main thing with either one to me is just think about when you're making this character, set aside the mechanical ability for a moment and just think about what that ability sort of means to your character. Mm 
Right. How does your ability to shapeshift sort of again to you, is that just something that's as natural as breathing? Is it something that again you've grown up hiding your true nature from other people? Uh, you know, just what does it mean to you? And right. how does it make you different from playing a human or an elf? Right. And maybe so, how is it different for you from others of the same race as well? And the funny thing, too, is I'll call out that in I'm, I'm running a 5e campaign myself. Uh, and in the last adventure, uh, someone's old friend sort of showed up and they hadn't seen this person for a really long time. And he just instinctively was like, well, OK, what did I say to you? Uh, you know, that when my brother died or, you know, something like that, basically a challenge question. And part of the point to me is that's the other thing to think about with changelings is they're in the world and everybody knows that. And so you'd have a certain amount of stuff like that just being commonplace. You know, if you see what I'm saying that I am going to, if I have, if if someone shows up that I'm really surprised to see them. I may challenge them to make sure right. they're not a changeling because you, you might changelings be a are in the world, right? <laughs> you know, and and that they're not, uh, you know, they're they're an understood thing that people know is out there, and so therefore there will be some common practices that people will just take for granted. That of course I'm going to ask you some kind of you know personal question just to make sure you're who you are, and I might not right. do that with everybody ever all the time, but if it's like weird. I didn't, ex- I didn't think you were here. Let me double check to make sure you're you. You know, right. it's not a weird thing to do. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just another wacky thought to think about. Yeah. And and just one last right. wacky thought, uh, just to, mm-hmm. for somebody to chew on. Uh, you know, a changeling pretending to be a shifter. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that at all. Cool. Um, right. Now you can flip it around and have a shifter pretending to be a changeling, but you know, they'd know be very are... stubborn. They'd be like, yeah. well, I'm not changing my form for you, but I could if I wanted to. I could to. if I wanted to. Right. Don't make me. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. All right. Good stuff. Blow all right. My mind. Well, uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for listening, and be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, and find links to our Google Plus, Twitter, and Facebook pages. And whatever option you prefer, just let us know what you think of the show. And uh, join us next time when uh, I think, Keith, we, we might talk about Kalistar. What do you think? All right. I'm all for it. Excellent. Because I know you've got uh, quite a few thoughts on Kalistar. So. Oh, absolutely. And and again, going back to what I said before, they were the, they were the actual, uh, when I made the setting, they were the only new race in the nice. first draft of the setting because the other races were, you know, doppelgangers, goblins, things that existed. And the, Versions of, the yeah. Kalistar were the, the thing where I was like, I, you know, how do you work psionics into the world and made up something to do that? Uh, So we'll talk more about that in the future. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, until next time, keep exploring.